Ahoy hoy, podcast listeners. We're talking about anti, anti-partum fetal surveillance. Practice Bulletin 229. I'm back in Louisville. I'm getting ready to take a vacation to Montenegro, if you can believe it. An actual vacation. That's wild, isn't it? This topic is really important. I, I, I counsel probably m- more on this topic than m- virtually any other because I support a lot of out-of-hospital community midwives who, um, you know, want to know, is there an indication here to do some additional surveillance, NSTs, CSTs, BPPs? Not everybody has access to an NST, so what can we do with just a modified BPP or just the other attributes of a BPP minus the NST? What about low fluid? What do we do with low fluid? There is all sorts of questions that arise in this. If, you, if you're a midwife out there, you're looking for collaboration. I serve midwives in 24 states now. Welcome to get, I'm uh, happy to get licensed in your state if that would be supportive to you. Um, you can find everything at belovedholistics.com. I really, really love that role. You know, when I got out of the hospital birth work, which, by the way, I'm applying for privileges now in Southern California in order to get back into the hospital, provide services in Southern California, home birth, birth center, and then also have admission, admitting privileges at a local hospital in Encinitas, um, just because I think it would be helpful. (laughs) I think it'd be helpful to have access to a lot of these technologies that are not available in the community. And um, and then I can flout my 4% C-section rate there. That'll be nice. I have access to vacuums and all the other stuff. So, anyways, antipartum fetal surveillance. What we're talking about here is trying to monitor the acid base status of a baby in order to prevent stillbirth. That's really what this is about. And before we get into that, there are five pearls that I think are, can easily be, easily be gleaned from this otherwise very laborious practice bulletin, which hasn't changed much, by the way, over the past decade or so. Um, this one was republished June 2021 with a little couple little additions around kick counts. We'll get into that. But let's let's talk through the five pearls first. So number one, changes in fetal activity over serial assessments may reflect uteroplacental compromise. Two, NSTs reflect short-term fetal acid base status. Amniotic fluid assessment is a long-term indicator of placental function. can also be reflective of the baby's um, if the baby's hypoxic, we'll get into that and why that's connected. Number three, variable decelerations are present in up to 50% of NSTs. If they aren't repetitive and last for less than 30 seconds, then they are not indicative of fetal acidemia or compromise, and no interventions needed. You're going to see them. If you listen long enough to a baby's heart rate, especially in labor or early labor, you're going to hear decels. It's just a part of the thing. They get the cord under the arm and pinch it for a moment, and bam, you get a variable. Let's not get crazy. Let's think about the whole clinical picture. Number four, if the fetus is growth-restricted, it's likely due to placental dysfunction, which may be detected as the um, stopping or even reversal of umbilical artery blood between the baby and the uh, placenta, which is detected on something called umbilical artery doppler velocimetry. We'll get into that. Number five, generally speaking, surveillance should begin no sooner than 32 weeks gestational age and should be repeated no more frequently than weekly. So when I was in uh, residency, the first day of my training, I had a little lecture. It's like an hour-long lecture from a guy named Emiliano Chavira, who's an MD, OBGYN, MFM, super great guy. He actually came to speak. He's been a mentor of mine ever since residency. He came to speak at my 2023 Twins Breach Conference here in Louisville. And by the way, 2024 um, is going to be even better. We're bringing a lot of traditional midwives in. We're going to still be teaching the principles of Twins and Breach, but also informed consent. Um, We're going to do some trauma-informed care. And with the primary intent of teaching these skills, the secondary intent is building bridges um, between out-of-hospital birth workers. There's a lot of horizontal violence out there, a lot of people tearing one another down, pointing out people's blemishes whenever perhaps it would be more important to, s- to simply support one another and, and make people feel safe to admit when they need help. 
but I digress. That will be all a big part of the 2024 Twins Breach Conference. So you can find me on Instagram, Nathan Riley OBGYN. You'll see some info there as well as belovedholistics.com. Anywho, Dr. Chavir came in and gave us little newbie interns a little talk around the physiology of oxygen exchange between the outside environment and the baby inside the womb. So here's what happens. Mom takes a big deep breath. Her lungs fill up, drawing in oxygen. The oxygen diffuses across little blood vessels and the, the lining of the little airways called alveoli in the mom's lungs that passes into her bloodstream. And then red blood cells carrying the oxygen, thanks to heme, carries it around the body, including to the placenta. The oxygen's passed from these blood cells to blood cells circulating within the fetal circulation via the placenta, the life support system of the baby. And then this oxygenated fetal blood travels back to the fetal heart through the umbilical vein. Yes, veins in adults are typically carrying deoxygenated blood, but in the case of the baby, the veins, which carry always just universally carry blood back to the, uh, to the heart, um, in a baby, this is going to be oxygenated blood. So that's where the umbilical vein comes in. And, um, and then it circulates around the fetus. It's used, some of the oxygen is used. And then the, the red, blood, red blood cells, you know, do their thing. They carry out, um, they, they buffer the blood with carbonic acid and, and, um, or carbonate, I should say, in order to um, recirculate back to the placenta, pick up more oxygen and come and continue to do this thing. So babies have a similar physiology there in that they're trying to get rid of CO2 and they're trying to take in oxygen. And if anything disrupts any part of this process, including is mom inhaling air that has enough oxygen in it, you could see an issue with the fetus. Now, Dr. Um, Chavira had made the point that when we see a baby's heart rate dropping and we get all flustered, the first thing that we do is we tend to put a mask with oxygen on the mom. But that doesn't necessarily fix the problem, which is why it's not always the best thing to do. Can't hurt. Arguably can't hurt, although... You know, we have to consider reactive oxygen species and whatnot when we're blasting anybody with, you know, pure O2 or even mixed O2 with air, with room air. But the point here is that baby's heart rate drops, baby's not getting enough oxygen. Just popping the oxygen on mom and thinking you've fixed the problem is not, doesn't really require much critical thinking. So we have to kind of get past this. If a mom is, if her oxygen levels on pulse ox are 99%, you're not going to support the baby by giving her an oxygen mask. She's already doing just fine on room air. So it's important to be critical thinkers about this stuff. All right, so as I mentioned, these surveillance techniques we're going to be talking about are going to provide some insight into a fetus's acid-base status. And that's important. Remember, when we collect cord gases, we're looking at the pH of blood. If pH blood drops down low, it shows that there's some state of acidemia, which um, succeeds some degree of hypoxemia. Right? When the tissues start to be deprived of oxygen, um, we end up with a, in a state of lactic acidosis, and that is reflected in pH. So when a baby's acid-base status falls, you know, the pH falls down a little bit below the normal physiologic pH of around, what, 7.4? That's when we start to consider, oh, maybe this baby's got some interruption in that oxygen delivery pathway that Dr. Chavira reviewed with me and my colleagues. By doing this, we sometimes can prevent stillbirth. Um, now, bear in mind, we're probably doing way more fetal surveillance than we have to. The risk of stillbirth is extraordinarily low, given that there's no other comorbidities um, in mom. So when we talk about some of these techniques, we can provide our clients with reasonable reassurance for about a week after that assessment. And that's barring any catastrophic event like placental abruption or some sort of cord accident. I've included a graphic from a paper that um, looked at a ton of births and, and really helped to objectify, to, to, to compute what is the risk of death of a baby inside the uterus at 37 weeks, 38 weeks, all the way up to 42 weeks. And even at 42 weeks, 
we have very, very, very low stillbirth rates, like way less than 1%. So it's important to bear all of that in mind. So how much surveillance do we need to know in order to prevent the death of one baby? That's really still kind of hard for us to to, to wrap our head around, heads around because the incidence of a baby dying in the uterus is so low. Now, we've all seen it, but we're birth workers. <clears throat> so if you consider the million times it didn't happen, that, that one stillbirth still sticks with us. And I understand that. That's why we have to really be thoughtful about this. You know, is this a baby that we may have reason to be concerned about? And once we get the, the whatever surveillance we do, like let's say an NST, can we be re- reassured? Can we say for sure that this baby's not going to die? No. But is it already a low risk, especially if the NST looks normal? It's, it's extremely unlikely. So we have to be very careful with how we utilize these technologies and how we counsel around what they can and can't do for us. Fetal heart rate pattern, the fetal activity levels, like if a baby's moving around, hiccuping and all of that, has a lot of good tone, um, these are all reflective of that acid-base status, right? And, you know, with a normal heart rate pattern, normal activity and all of that, you can be reasonably assured that this baby's okay at that moment and probably for up to a week, again, barring any sort of unforeseen catastrophic events. When the baby is hypoxemic, blood gets redistributed in their little body <clears throat> to the brain and adrenals such that, and away from the kidneys, such that renal blood flow is relatively diminished. This can lead to oligohydramnios. Um, and if we can detect early uh, hypoxemia, we may be able to avoid that next step, which is the acidemia, and the next step after that would be a baby that dies inside the uterus. So I mentioned this a little bit, but I think it bears repeating. When oxygen is present, the process of aerobic respiration drives energy production, but in the absence of oxygen, lactic fermentation takes over and that produces acid. That's why the pH drops in the baby's bloodstream or your bloodstream as an adult. So surveillance implies more than one assessment, right? We need to be looking at things over time. So let's say that you have a baby that's moving, 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 and then suddenly is not moving at all. That's a baby that probably needs to be looked at a little bit more carefully. This can reflect utero-placental compromise, catastrophic or otherwise. We used to do like cord blood sampling while the baby's in the uterus. We don't do that anymore, but now that we have the cord gases, we do know that there's, you know, a rough range, um, <clears throat> you know, within which, you know, we're, we're reasonably, you know, assured. So the process of cordocentesis is when we take an ultrasound and under direct visualization, we take a needle through the skin, through the wall of the uterus, into the cord, and we sample the fetal umbilical vein blood, and then we look at the pH. Fetuses with problems. We used to do this, not routinely, but we used to do this way more than we do it now. Um, it's, I've never even seen this done, even in all of my training. I'm sure it's still possible. Some people still do it, but it's kind of fallen out of favor, right, because there are risks to doing that. Fetuses who have developed problems postnatally were found to have a mean umbilical vein pH of 7.28. And you don't see a cessation of fetal movement until about a pH of 7.16. Now, if physiologic um, pH is 7.4, we don't have to drop that much. And that's because there's a whole bunch of buffering agents in the blood um, that, you know, like lactate, actually, that actually help to mitigate major disturbances in the pH of blood, whether it's an adult or an unborn baby. So... Kit counts have been a really, really big part of the sort of story, and we're going to talk a little bit more about kit counts, but if a mom notes that for whatever reason, things just don't, baby just does not seem to be moving as much, or if you see it on ultrasound, like that baby's not moving a lot, what's going on there? Or if there's an abnormal fetal heart rate pattern, there's always, you know, you're never going to be blamed for doing a little bit of a deeper investigation, like ordering a BPP or something like that. Um just because of these loose associations with fetal pH and, and outcomes. Um, so when we're trying to utilize these technologies, we have to remember that this, these surveillance techniques cannot tell you the severity of the acidemia or hypoxemia. We just don't, we can't ever say for sure. In other words, we've seen a lot of babies who have abnormal looking NSTs or abnormal fluid or whatever, and they come out looking totally fine, and, the, and vice versa is true. It doesn't, also doesn't tell you how long has the baby been compromised. 
That's why serial assessments are so helpful. And it's also important to remember that abnormal surveillance findings don't always even reflect fetal acidemia or hypoxemia. So we have to just, you know, we're not automatons. We have to be very, very thoughtful about the whole clinical picture here when we're starting to recommend these technologies. This is not a 100% um, surefire way to save any baby or any mom. It is just another tool. And that's why, you know, doctors and midwives should probably be paid more because it all rests on them to make these decisions. And that's also, I guess, why I do so much counseling of my collaborative midwives on these topics. There are a whole bunch of other things that can change the outcomes of these surveillance techniques that have nothing to do with the baby being good and then suddenly being compromised and then we have a, cat a catastrophe. Something as simple as a fetal sleep cycle can show up on an NST as a non-reactive tracing. Premature babies have, normal, have abnormal um, findings often on surveillance. There are maternal medications that can change the outcomes of these surveillance techniques. Maternal smoking, um, fetal central nervous system abnormalities. All of these can show up as kind of funny findings or abnormal findings on any of these sur fetal sur uh, surveillance techniques. Um, it's also important to remember that a lot of these techniques, these are not a replacement for your clinical decision making around those catastrophic events like a severe placental abruption or a cord prolapse. That's going to lead to rapid onset acidosis. And... Um, and th those things oftentimes do lead to fetal demise. So if you suspect a cord prolapse, you don't go for an NST. You do an exam, right? If you think that there is something truly catastrophic, you're not going to put them on the monitor for an hour and see if there's axels. We need to be a little bit more proactive. In the meantime, kick counts have always been uh, a real mainstay, I think, of, of our counseling for especially new moms, their first pregnancy around whether or not to, you know, they can tell if the baby's doing okay. So this is, these kick counts are really, um, what I always say is that, you know, the maternal perception of decreased fetal movement can predict fetal death in the coming days. But that's not like based on this study or whatever. It's just the reality. When I've seen babies that come in and they were doing fine and they're not doing fine, it's almost always because mom said, baby has been moving ev so much every day and I'll, suddenly I'm not feeling anything. That is your clue to start investigating a little bit more deeply. So because we know of this association, nobody's going to deny that association. This has been the rationale for us recommending this um, for decades. I mean, probably longer than decades. This is probably a, a mainstay even before these technologies were available. However, there was a systematic review done by Belusi et al. in 2020 that found that performing kick counts led not to better perinatal outcomes, but rather increased preterm delivery, induction, and C-section. So what that tells me is not that kick counts don't work. It's that we're not being super specific or regular in our counseling around the importance of doing them. So, you know, as a baby gets bigger and there's less space in the uterus, there's going to be less of the flip-flops and less of the punching and kicking. There's going to be more like a rolling kind of undulating sensation. I've never had a baby inside my body. I don't have a uterus, but this is, you know, something I talked to my wife quite a few times about. And I actually, one day we were having dinner with her when she was pregnant with Penny, our first. She said, you know, I haven't felt any movement today at all. And I was like, oh my gosh. And we rushed to the hospital. And of course, like the baby was just fine on the monitors, but I was really, really concerned. So if we're not discerning about this, we're going to take these changes in a maternal in maternal perception and unnecessarily maybe uh, recommend iatrogenic preterm delivery, induction of labor, C-section, and that's driving our statistics in the wrong direction. There was also a large meta-analysis published in The Lancet, one of the biggest journals in the world, that confirmed that current recommendations for, ma for maternal awareness of reduced fetal movement needs to be studied through larger trials to draw any firm conclusions. So if we're going to do kick counts, what does that look like? In general, 10 distinct movements over a two-hour period, including kicks, punches, turns, rolls, whatever. And if you're feeling hiccups, that's a very, very good sign that everything is peachy. It's important to remember that as a baby develops in the uterus, first she develops tone, then she develops gross, you know, starts moving grossly inside the, the womb. That's the flips and turns and kicks and punches. And then finally develops these, like, kind of breathing patterns, right? And the hiccups count for that. So if a baby is compromised, that she will lose it in the opposite direction. So first to go is the breathing movements, the hiccups, then the gross movements, 
right? And then tone altogether is lost, right? And this is where the BPP comes in that we're going to be talking about. All right, another um, surveillance technique is called a contraction, a contraction stress test. So the whole, whole idea here is let's see how the fetal heart rate pattern changes in response to uterine contractions. So what we do is we get the uterus contracting either through oxytocin infusion or even nipple stimulation. A lot of OBGYNs don't do that. I think it's perfectly fine. The whole point is to get the uterus to contract. Um, you can get it to contract too much. Hydrate, take electrolytes, make sure your blood sugars are okay. All of those things still apply here as if you were going into labor, which is just a little practice round. Um, and the pattern we're looking for to use the validated version of the contraction stress test is you want to see three, co three contractions occurring over a 10-minute period, each lasting at least 40 seconds, right? So it's not a labor pattern, but it would be like an early labor pattern. That's what you want to get going here. I have not found, by the way, that this puts people into labor prematurely. I'm not going to say it hasn't happened, but in my practice, it hasn't. Um, so while you're, you've got the uterus contracting now three times over a 10-minute period, each contraction is at least 40 seconds, we know that we're giving the baby a little bit of putting a little flame under the butt, so to speak, and we're looking for decelerations. A late deceleration is suspicious for uteroplacental insufficiency. That's when the deceleration um, occurs. The, the bottoming out of the deceleration occurs after the contraction has stopped. Um, they appear right after the peak of the of the contraction on the TOCO. So um, you probably have seen a fetal heart rate tracing. You can look this up. Look up late deceleration on Google. Variable decelerations suggest cord compression, perhaps due to oligohydramnios. There's just not a lot of fluid there for the cord to float around freely. There are no absolute contraindications to doing a contraction stress test. So there's that. Now here's how you interpret it. You consider it negative, which is good if there is no D-cells or significant variable D-cells. It's positive if you see late decelerations with over or equal to 50% of contractions, even if there's less than three contractions over 10 minutes. A CST that's equivocal or suspicious would have late decelerations with less than 50% of contractions or significant variable decelerations. It is equivocal, not equivocal suspicious, but equivocal, like we're not really sure what to do with this if D-cells are occurring with contractions, but the contractions are coming way too fast or lasting too long in the test. Okay, so if, it, if they're coming more than every two minutes or lasting more than 90 seconds, it's not a fair CST, right? Maybe we're just pushing the uterus too hard. And then unsatisfactory would be, we can't get the uterus to contract at least three times over 10 minutes, or if the tracing just totally sucks, then we're not gonna count that. We're not gonna you know, base our decision-making or our counseling on that. Um, I included the formal definition of late decelerations here. It's a decrease in fetal heart rate below baseline in which the nadir of this drop occurs at least 30 seconds from onset. And the onset of the deceleration occurs after the onset of the contraction. So there you go. I've also included a little graphic here to show you what an early deceleration, which is generally considered a good thing, head compression, that babies in the pelvis, that type of thing, late deceleration, um, which you can see, then a deer occurs either at the very, very tail end of the contraction or after the contraction has stopped, and then a variable deceleration is an abrupt shoo, shoo, down and up. That's that. Now, of course, there are things that, you know, we see that look like variables, but they're really, really long. Those don't fit, not, you know, neatly into these three categories, but we, you just got to consider the whole clinical picture. Um... What's kind of interesting about variable decelerations, and this, this might just be interesting to you, is that remember there's one big vein and two arteries in the umbilical cord. When the cord is compressed, you actually get a compression of the vein. Veins are these easily collapsible structures versus the rigid kind of strong walls of arteries. And so when the cord is occluded, you get a decrease in venous return to the heart, and that causes the baby's heart rate to speed up. So you see like before and after a variable deceleration, the cord is initially compressed. You get a rapid jump in the baby's heart rate, and then it comes down really, really quickly. And then it goes back up way above baseline, and then it goes down to baseline. Those are the called the shoulders, in case you're curious. It actually is a nice way to be able to determine, man, that kind of looks like a variable, but I'm not totally sure. Is it an early? Is it a variable? The shoulders are characteristic of variable decelerations. A little fun fact for you. All right, let's talk about non-stress tests. 
All right, so these are a way to just look at the short-term fetal acid base status. It's a moment in time for the 20 plus minutes that you're looking at it. It tells us, hey, things look pretty good or hmm, we need to investigate more, right? That's really what an on-stress test is all about. The hallmark of these, the NSTs, is the presence or absence of an acceleration. An acceleration is defined as an increase in the fetal heart rate above baseline by greater than or equal to 15 beats per minute um, for greater than or equal to 15 seconds each if the baby is greater than 32 weeks gestation. Otherwise, it's 10 beats per minute and 10 seconds if the baby is less than 32 weeks. And that's just because the nervous system and its corresponding influence over the cardiovascular system, especially fetal heart rate, is going to change as a baby gets more and more mature and closer to term. A fetus that is not acidotic is going to show axels on NST. That means that if you see accelerations, that baby is very unlikely to be in any harm, again, barring a catastrophic event, if things were to con you know, continue in pregnancy thereafter for at least a week. You have to be watching to do a, an NST properly. You have to be looking for at least 20 minutes. And of course, we've already t discussed this, but the fetus has these sleep and wake cycles. So if the baby happens to be in a sleep cycle during those 20 minutes and you take them off, not <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> we've got to give the baby time. So if you don't see accelerations, try vibrating the uterus. You can take a little buzzing device. They used to have these things called vibroacoustic stimulators. We would use pagers. We would use um, shaving devices, right? And just take the machine and put the butt end on the belly, and it generally will wake babies up. You can also use like cold water, have a like a, a glass of cold orange juice really does the trick. The way to reinterpret it is two ways. You can have a reactive NST or a non-reactive. A reactive NST has greater than or equal to two accelerations over a 20-minute period. Non-reactive will have less than two accelerations over a 40-minute period. It is not a useful tool in preterm babies. 50% um, of fetuses at 24 to 28 weeks have non-reactive NSTs. That's because their sympathetic tone hasn't fully developed, right? We've got our parasympathetic branches. We've got our sympathetic. It develops from the lower branches of parasympathetic up to the sympathetic to the upper branches of the parasympathetic. And that, you know, towards the end of the, into the third trimester, you're going to see definitely a more reactivity on these NSTs. For babies that are 28 to 32 weeks, 15% have non-reactive NSTs. So after 32 weeks, this is, that's the best, uh, the, this, this technology is most useful after 32 weeks gestation. Variable decelerations are present in up to 50% of all NSTs. And if they aren't repetitive or last for, and if they're lasting for less than 30 seconds, you don't have much to worry about there. Like, we don't know for sure, but from what we know through the validation studies of this technology, it should not be a reason that we're inducing or doing C-sections or getting all, you know, all excited. Any deceleration variable or late that lasts for greater than or equal to 60 seconds is associated with fetal demise, right, in the coming days. So we have to watch out for that. That's the one time that you may need to ask for some additional testing, like a biophysical profile. So a biophysical profile is a 10-point scoring system. I don't know why they didn't just do five points, but whatever. It's five components with two points each. Of those 10 possible points, eight come from an ultrasound evaluation, and the remaining two are from your NST. According to ACOG, regardless of your composite score, oligohydramnios, which is just one of the five components, which we'll get into, should prompt further investigation. We are probably inducing too much for isolated oligo, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, as a long-term indicator of placental function, there's nothing better than amniotic fluid assessment. But we need to stop using amniotic fluid index and start using the deepest vertical pocket. Per Cochrane, quote, Cochrane Review, big group of people who read literature all day and take RCTs and take all the studies and try to give us a composite conclusion from what the data can tell us. So per Cochrane, in their meta-analysis, the single deepest vertical pocket measurement in the assessment of amniotic fluid volume during fetal surveillance seems a better choice since the use of the amniotic fluid index increases the rate of diagnosis of oligohydramnios and the rate of induction of labor without improvement in peripartum outcomes. That is all that you need to know in order to determine 
if this baby has normal fluid or not. DVP, guys, not AFI. So the five components of the, um, of the BPP are your non-stress test, determination of amniotic fluid, volume. Again, we're looking for a pocket greater than two centimeters, and that would get you the two points. NST, as long as it is um, you know, reflective of a normal acid base status, meaning you've got axels, you've got good variability, there's none of that like weird D cells here and there, which should prompt further investigation, you get two points there. So you've already got four. The others are fetal breathing movements. That would be to, that would be um, classified as one or more episodes of rhythmic fetal breathing movements of 30 seconds or more within a 30-minute period. Yes, you have to do a BPP over an entire 30 minutes, if not a little bit more, um, because the baby might be in a sleep cycle. And then suddenly baby wakes up and does all the things, they still get the points. Fetal movement, three or more discrete body or limb movements within 30 minutes, and then fetal tone, one or more episodes of extension of a fetal extremity with return deflection or opening or closing of a hand. You could also consider the spine extension and flexion. Um, that also counts. And for breathing, by the way, you're looking at it at like a cross section of like a coronal section of the fetal thorax, and you can actually see the ribs kind of flux, they're like kind of vacillating. It's like all those intercostal muscles and the diaphragm seem to be sort of like flexing themselves, waiting for the opportunity to take that first big deep breath after birth. It's awesome to see. It looks really, really cool. And hiccups do count as breathing movements. It's important to remember from the standpoint of fluid, remember the fetus is peeing into the sac. There's some lung fluid contributing. There's some exchange um, intermembranous exchange, um, swallowing. So all of this is contributing to the, the whole picture of what, of, of what you know, amount of fluid you have there. Um, the placenta is, is a big part of this. So just bear that in mind. I, I've included graphics for all this stuff, guys, by the way, if you want to see it. The show notes are available to people who subscribe on Patreon for five bucks a month. You have access to all of the notes. There's links. There's studies linked. There's all kinds of cool stuff. So um, check that out at the, uh, the link in the podcast description if you're interested. All right, a modified BPP. So not all of us have, you know, the ability to do the full ultrasound or we aren't trained to do that. That's fine. Amniotic fluid assessment plus NST is your M, your modified BPP. It has a far better false negative rate than the full BPP or CST, which should tell us something. That means that there's a lot of subjectivity in how we, um, you know, perform a BPP and then interpret the results. One other... Um, Surveillance technique we should talk about is umbilical artery Doppler velocimetry. Um, so this has been validated as a surveillance tool for monitoring vascular resistance only in pregnancies affected by fetal growth restriction. If there is not a growth-restricted baby, like a truly growth-restricted baby, then there's no, this, this technology tells us very, very little. Now, maybe in the future, we'll start doing this routinely on every single baby, and we'll have a different opinion. But right now, We've only validated this in babies affected by growth restriction. Um, so in a normally growing fetus, blood flow at end of diastole, diastole is still very high. That means when the heart, you know, the heart goes, compresses itself and shoots blood out to the body, and then it relaxes, right? Systole is, is, is compresses, diastole is relaxed. During the relaxation phase, blood is still moving forward from the baby to the placenta. But if a baby is growth restricted, we have to consider, is the placenta dysfunctional? And if the placenta is dysfunctional, is there increased resistance at the placenta causing the blood flow during diastole of the heart rhythm to slow down or even reverse in direction? That's where we get worried. That's what Doppler velocity symmetry of the umbilical artery is so, um, is so great. Now, we can't use this technology to tell us anything in this, you know, for the purpose of just routine antepartum fetal surveillance, um, we can't use the middle cerebral artery. We can't use the ductus venosus. They have not been found to improve perinatal outcomes. Their utility is unclear, but there are certain uh, practices in which these things will be used. And I've seen some MFMs use some pretty awesome computational skills in order to consider all of these factors. That's a real clinician. So just because, you know, ACOG says it's not useful, there are people out there on the, on the fringe and I don't mean to say that in a negative way, but like pushing the, the edge a little bit, our learning edge, and helping us understand how the dynamics 
of blood flow to the baby's brain to, you know, through these various uh, shunting, you know, mechanisms, what all of that means when a baby's growth restricted and we're, and we're worried about the, the function of the placenta. So I've included a little graphic in the show notes. Um, when diastolic, the diastolic velocity slows down or even reverses in the opposite direction, um, that's, that's when we get concerned about, you know, fetal demise in the coming days or weeks of a, of a growth-restricted baby. So how well do these techniques work? Are they actually improving outcomes? Well, data is available from large observational studies on NST, CST, BPP, and the modified BPP. Remember, modified is when we're just looking at the amniotic, amniotic fluid and NST without the three other metrics that are otherwise um, a part of the BPP. So they all have a very low, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, well, let's talk about um, NST first. So NST has a very low false negative for uh, rate for stillbirth within one week. So um, that means you know it's it's a negative predictive value of about ninety nine point eight percent. It's a little bit higher for CST, BPP, MBPP, the modified. All that that means is that if you get a good result on NST, you have a pretty damn good chance that something isn't gonna bad isn't gonna happen, upwards of of a hundred percent within one week. For a reactive NST, <clears throat> the stillbirth rate is two in one thousand. That's point two percent. It's point three per a thousand after a negative CST, so that's even better, and 0.8 per 1,000 after a normal BPP or modified BPP. So these numbers are not relevant in the presence of congenital anomalies or, you know, those catastrophic events that we talked about, like cord prolapse and acute placental abruption. They haven't really done any similar large studies with Doppler reveal asymmetry. Um, however, the available evidence suggests that it has a comparable negative predictive value. So these don't tell us that babies are going to do well. It tells us that there's a very, very, very tiny chance that they won't do well. That's really important to remember. So if you were to take away nothing from this practice bulletin, remember this. None of these numbers mean that antepartum fetal surveillance pre prevents poor fetal outcomes. And we have to counsel appropriately. No randomized controlled trials have been completed. These are observational studies, <clears throat> as I think I've mentioned a million times now. But a reassuring result from any of these methods um, d should also not lead us to like not um, do any sort of intrapartum fetal heart rate monitoring, right? So just because there was a, a healthy, you know, a normal reactive NST doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing any sort of antepartum. Um, or, you know, intrapartum monitoring. Now, that's a separate conversation altogether. What method is best? We're not going to get into that here. Um, we have not validated continuous fetal heart rate monitoring as a, as a little wink and a nod. Um, let's see. What else do I want to talk about? Yeah. So um, there are, with all of these methods, relatively high false positive rates. So they, there, was, there was this one large center study in which 60% of infants delivered because of an abnormal antepartum test result had no evidence of short-term or long-term fetal compromise. Meaning, we saw something on one of these, these screening methods, we acted because we thought we knew what we were, you know, we were doing the right thing, and it turns out that it was the baby, there was nothing wrong with the baby. So we can say that the same thing about continuous fetal heart rate monitoring in most circumstances. So we need to be very, very clear as to when we are recommending antepartum fetal surveillance testing. There was a whole committee opinion from ACOG number 828. I've linked it in the show notes. And in the practice bulletin, there is a box for indications for antepartum fetal surveillance testing. Now, this list has gotten to be so big. Like this box one is pretty small. But when I was in residency, people were coming in for NSTs for everything from like, you know, fulminant liver failure to like an infected toenail. Like it was it was everything. We were like reading a hundred of these a day. It was just crazy. So there is a nice list there. Obviously, any of the major maternal conditions, you know, pregestational diabetes mellitus, hypertension, SLE, um, renal disease, hyperthyroidism, some pregnancy-related conditions like gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, decreased fetal movement. All of those are good reasons. And there's more. You just have to go and look at, at the box in the practice bulletin. But the point here is that we need to have a really good reason for why we're recommending this. And again, it's not all that useful until 32 weeks. So just bear all that in mind. So when should we initiate it? 
if it's indicated at all, and how often. So remember, we have a, an issue with doing this before 32 weeks. In the premature period, utility of surveillance varies because the false positive rates are so high. Remember, 50% of NSTs um, from 24 to 28 weeks are non-reactive, and 15%, 1-5 of NSTs from 20 to 32 weeks are non-reactive. That means that 15% of the people getting these NSTs might end up with an iatrogenic induction, uh, preterm induction, or something like that, or a stat C-section. If we forget that, oh, this baby is actually not, it doesn't even have a fully, doesn't even have a fully developed, you know, nervous system. So risks and benefits of surveillance are always going to be the crux of your conversation and counseling for your clients, and really in your collegiality with, you know, your your partners. So when we, even if the baby is at term, the timing and frequency of this of these screens should really be considered very very thoughtfully. You have to take into into consideration what is the likelihood of a baby surviving. What are the patient's attitudes about intervention? What is the risk of fetal death? What is the risk of prematurity? How severe is mom's disease? Right? If she has super well controlled pregestational diabetes, like you know her blood sugars when she wakes up are eighty five, and after meals they're like bam one o five one ten like. If she's a super well-controlled and her baby's growing well and she's got no other signs of anything else happening, that's very, very different from a person who's got, you know, nephropathy and um, retinopathy and just has had, you know, an A1C of 13%, right? So we have to consider all of that. And then we also have to consider, what if we find something abnormal here? Are we willing to deliver this baby preterm? Are we you know, going to order more, you know, advanced surveillance? Do we have access to all of that? So just ordering these willy-nilly does not protect us. It doesn't protect the babies. It doesn't protect the moms if it's not a part of the bigger um, clinical picture. 32 weeks and beyond is when it's generally recommended. There are exceptions, right? If you have fetal growth restriction in the setting of like chronic hypertension at 30 weeks or something, yeah, maybe you you do look a little bit more carefully, especially if you're going to do growth ultrasounds and, and all of that. And maybe you do some Doppler velocimetry, right? It's the NSTs that are a little tricky here. But if you have a baby at 30 weeks and, you know, you're like, oh, Dr. Riley said don't do the NST before 32 weeks. Okay, well, can you assess the fluid? Is there no fluid around that baby, right? This is where we have to put on our thinking caps. So if whatever condition it was that prompted you to recommend let's say NSTs or whatever, if that condition persists, then you have to repeat this periodically, probably no more than a week, um, but it may be up until they give birth. If you're only recommended, we haven't really talked about much, much about growth ultrasounds because that's kind of a different topic here. Um, it is a part of the workup, but there's this whole separate practice bulletin on growth restriction. But if you're doing serial growth assessment, do not perform this more frequently than every two weeks because the baby, the margin of error, especially in the third trimester, is so great. You're going to inadvertently shrink the baby, as one of the MFMs used to say to me, because we did it too frequently. Measure it every week, and the baby's going to be bouncing you know, their numbers, and it's going to look like they're losing weight or something, which doesn't make much sense. So what if you do, what do you do if the assessment is abnormal? Let's say you're a community midwife, and you, you, know, you were able to assess fluid and get an NST, but something doesn't look right. So the false positive rates are really, really high. So you need to take into, into consideration, as always, the whole clinical picture. And then consider the etiologies, right? Go back to that whole um, oxygen delivery pathway and try to correct any potential maternal conditions that can be resulting in the abnormal test. For example, a person who's hypoglycemic may have less reactivity on NST, just as an example. This goes for labor as well. This is why we shouldn't be withholding food and water from women who are laboring for three days, especially when we recommended induction at 39 weeks and their bodies aren't even close to going into labor. If the etiology of the abnormality on the, one of these, these surveillance methods is thought to be reversible, like let's say there's some placental dysfunction, repeat testing, and you may even have to you know, recommend having a baby before, before you know, mom thought, mom or dad thought it was, it was time. If your client or you listening, if you're a pregnant woman, if you experience decreased fetal movement, an NST, a CST, a BPP, a modified BPP, all good options. But if the NST or B, modified BPP is abnormal, you need to get the full BPP or, an, or a CST. We haven't talked about interpretation of the BPP, so let's do that really, really quickly. 
if you get all 10 points, now <laughs> let me also give this caveat, ACOG and the Society for Obstetrician and Gynecologic, whatever, SOGC, I think that's the Royal Society or something, um, they, you know, all of these sort of oversight bodies have different in, sort of impressions um, from what the BPP and, and a variety of other things really means to our clients. But remember, the BPP has five components, two points for each, so you can get, have a, a maximum of, of 10 out of 10. So if you have 10 out of 10, no sweat, we're good. Eight out of 10 with a normal fluid, no problem. Eight out of 10, and there's no NST done, still not a big deal. If there's an eight out of 10 and fluid is abnormal, right, we've got uncomplicated, isolated, persistent oligohydramnios, ACOG is going to recommend doing, um, uh, delivering 36 to 37 weeks. I don't necessarily think that's the greatest advice, and we'll talk about that in a minute. A 6 out of 10, but fluid is normal. If you're at 37 weeks, investigate a little bit more deeply and consider delivery. If it's less than 37 weeks, now we have to deal with this issue of prematurity. They want you to repeat the BPP in 24 hours. The same goes if it's 6 out of 10 for abnormal fluid. So 6 out of 10 across the board. A greater than 37 weeks, investigate further or consider delivery. If any of those follow-ups are abnormal, if it's less than 37 weeks, just repeat the BPP in 24 hours. And that may be hard if you're out in the community. A 4 out of 10, delivery is almost always going to be indicated. Um, if the pregnancy is less than 32 weeks, then man, we have to be very, very thoughtful about the risks of prematurity versus the benefits of delivering a baby who's potentially at harm because the the uterus or the placenta is starting to become dysfunctional. Um, two out of 10 or zero out of 10, let's go. Let's get this baby out of there. The SOGC, um, SOGC recommendations are a little bit more conservative. You can check that out in the show notes. On Doppler velocity symmetry, if there is absent end diastolic flow noted on, on, on the, in the umbilical artery and the baby's at least 34 weeks, then we should be right. We should be considerate of delivery against, again, balancing the risks of prematurity with the benefits of delivering early. Um, and if there's reversed end diastolic flow, at least 32 weeks, we're going to be pushing towards delivery. That's a baby that's definitely at risk of compromise. There's some other details about the Doppler VLS symmetry, but I'm going to leave that to the show notes for those who are interested. So this Last topic we're going to go over is the significance. What is the significance, if any, of, of oligohydramnios? That's low fluid, right? And, well, and we're not talking about AFI. We're talking about DVP. There's not a single pocket greater than two centimeters in the uterus. That may be a problem. So first, let's make sure that her membranes are intact, right, to the best of your ability, right? If, if two days ago there was a bunch of fluid and then you pop an ultrasound and, and, and now there's no fluid, perhaps it's not oligohydramnios due to the placenta. Maybe her water's open. Sometimes we miss that. So as I mentioned, ACOG feels that delivery should be considered between 36 and 37 weeks in persistent isolated oligohydramnios. Now granted, maybe the bladder's full, the baby hasn't fully voided, and then that would have given you a two centimeter pocket. Maybe um, mom's dehydrated, hydrate well, maybe recheck it later that day. There's all ways, sorts of ways to do this. But they've also looked at like, what is the downside to delivering babies who have isolated oligo without any other issues. There was a giant systematic review and meta-analysis by Shrem et al. 2016. They looked at 12 studies, including just about 36,000 women. In quotes, 2,414, or 6.7% of the women with isolated oligohydramnios and 33,585, that's 93% with normal AFI, they were using AFI, um, were evaluated. And the patients with isolated oligo had significantly higher rates of labor induction and C-sections. There were higher rates of APGAR scores less than 7 at 1 in 5 minutes and admissions to the, natal, uh, to the NICU. So higher rates with isolated oligo, higher rates of labor induction, C-section. They also did have lower APGAR scores at 1 in 5 minutes, and they had higher um, risks of admission to the NICU wasn't a giant um, de decrease based on an OR of 1.5 and 1.47 um, respectively, but it's, it's, it's statistically significant. But they found no differences, significant differences in cord pH less than 7.1 or meconium stained amniotic fluid. So 
There was one single randomized trial that compared labor induction with expectant management, and no differences were found in any significant maternal or neonatal outcomes. So the authors concluded that isolated oligo at term is associated with higher rates of induction, C-section, and short-term neonatal morbidity. And we still only had one randomized control trial. So there's quite a bit for us to investigate here. My personal preferences we have to be very, very, very cautious with how often we're inducing or doing C-sections, especially if it's preterm, um, for a simply low fluid. And the problem with this low fluid thing is, I, how many times have you heard borderline low fluid? If it's low, it's low. If it's not low, it's not low. Like these borderline terms are sort of like saying cannot rule out ectopic. Well, is it an ectopic or not? And yes, I understand if you've done enough ultrasounds and enough workups for people with abdominal pain, a positive pregnancy test, and there's no obvious pregnancy inside the, the uterus, cannot rule out, yeah. But can we rule out oligohydramnios? Is it negative? Is it low or is it high? Like it's, it makes it very, very hard for us when we use these vague terms. So be very, very clear. Are there risk factors? Is there a reason the fluid might be low? And can we bump the fluid up with hydration and electrolytes and all that type of stuff? Um, that's where I think this job is so much fun. It's like, man, let me put all of my skills to test here. Is this a person I'm worried about? Is this a baby I'm worried about? If so, then maybe we counsel and maybe even recommend early delivery. We still have to honor a person's decision. Um, we still need to counsel around risks, benefits, alternatives. But a part of our job is to say, hey, listen, I've looked at a thousand of these, and for whatever reason, I'm getting a feeling that your baby's not well. Or, hey, I know what this looks like, but honestly, I'm not concerned about your baby. I think the baby's in a sleep-wake cycle. I think that once you get up and move around a little bit and have some, you know, cold orange juice, I think we're probably going to see the baby wake up. Or let's buzz your belly a little bit. Like, there are so many other ways for us to test this. And if you have any doubts, you can always transfer to um, an MFM or if you're in the community to an OBGYN. And hopefully they'll receive you well and they'll lovingly counsel you based, you know, counsel uh, based on their experience so you can take that information and help your client make the right decision. Guys, that was fun. This is a topic that I have studied and studied and studied and studied. I find it so fascinating, especially the development of the nervous system and how the baby starts in a pair excuse me, parasympathetic, and then develops this sympathetic tone. And then it, the ventral vagal kind of balances that, that heart rate back out into that 110 to 160 range later in the, or really throughout the whole third trimester. It's just, just awesome physiology. So I hope you enjoyed this one. I will see you guys back next week with another fun topic here at the OB Gyno Wino podcast. My other podcast um, is still cranking out awesome conversations. That's the Holistic OB-GYN podcast. I'll put a link here in the uh, in the episode notes and of course clear and free our new um, program for uh, for helping to clear persistent HPV while you're awaiting your next your repeat screen repeat biopsy at your OBGYN's clinic that's all coming out we'll put all the links to all of this stuff in the notes um, in the meantime guys do no harm take no shit I love you and I'll see you next week bye bye